This is Outside the Vines, a podcast that fuses three big names from the world of sports, their love of wine, and their thirst for sports. For the video version of this podcast, check out our YouTube channel. There you get to enjoy the visual side of our podcast with next-level infographics, and you get to witness the reactions from our guests and hosts while they taste the wines. All right, let's get to it. Here are your hosts for Outside the Vines, Ted Robinson, Glenn Parker, and Ashley Adamson. 12 Olympic medals, one of the most decorated swimmers of the 21st century without question. A member of the Conference of Champions will proudly beat our chest. Three of us will for her wonderful career at, at Cal Berkeley. And what Natalie Coughlin has made so fascinating, and I think why we're so excited to have Natalie joining us on this uh, Outside the Vines, is that she has made this transition from a world of water to a world of the earth <laughs> to be the co-owner uh, and founder of a winery, Guderian Wines, which we're going to taste. Glenn is going to lead us through that exercise shortly. Uh, but Natalie, it's just it's wonderful to talk to you. But given where we are, we're doing this in the middle of June and 48 hours after the Olympic swimming trials ended, I just have to ask you, do you still watch? I do. I do. It was uh, it was weird not being at trials for the first time in 21 years um, and watching from home, but it was quite nice um, because, to be honest, that's an awful meet. <laughs> it is so stressful for everyone involved, uh, whether you you are successful or not successful, that you could cut the anxiety with a knife. So, um, you know, I was cheering like hell for my friends and teammates, but um, really, really glad that I wasn't competing myself. <laughs> I, 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 I love that because I just came back from the diving trials in Indianapolis and watched a, a young, terrific young diver from Texas have that worst experience of finishing third in the trials for the fourth time. For the oh fourth gosh. time, she was the first diver out has never gotten a chance to go to the games. And so you mix all of this incredible joy and pride of those who make it and their families are so proud as they should be. But then there's that one athlete in each competition that's the first one out and it's utter agony. It just blows my mind, it wrenches your heart every time. It does, it does. I, at one point I heard someone say that the pool's filled with chlorine and tears and <laughs> I think that's yeah. true. <laughs> well, you never had to experience that. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I did. I, I, I missed making it in 2000 and I missed making it in 2016. But fortunately, those three Olympics in between, I was very, very successful. So um, you get a little bit of the sweet and a little bit of the sour. <laughs> so so I, and I, we're going to pivot here very quickly into this new world. But so, for example, you missed in 16, as you said, that we were trying for one more. You watched Nathan Adrian, an mm -hmm. Olympic champion who was trying for one more and just missed, and then Simone Manuel, an Olympic champion, who barely made it. What were the motions and thoughts running through your mind as you were watching those two? I mean, specifically those two, I was really empathizing with the process of the past two years. Um, you know, the, the year leading up to the Olympics and specifically Olympic trials is insanely stressful. And then we throw the pandemic on top of it. And then we postpone the Olympics and the Olympic trials where everything is in limbo. And you don't know whether you, you're training for something, if it's actually going to happen. Um, Simone's a little younger, so she doesn't have the stresses of 
a child on the way. Um, Nathan just had a child, but you know, um, his wife was pregnant and he battled cancer and, um, like he has a lot of very, very adult challenges that he was dealing with. Um, and then training on top of it for this event that may or may not happen. I, I couldn't imagine, but I think both of them were, satisfied with their um, performances. You know, Simone made the 50 free, um, rose to the occasion when it mattered the most. And I think Nathan was happy with his performances. I have yet to, to have spoken with him, but um, I think he's gained a lot of perspective over the past couple years on what's important. And I think he left everything in the pool. And, um, you know, there's really not more that you could ask for yourself. All right, last swimming. Promise. The other moment that struck me watching the trials, Katie Ledecky, who's now 24, wins a race to make her third Olympics and second place is a 15-year-old. Another Katie. That, exactly. <laughs> and, and I sat there and Katie went over and was phenomenal in embracing her and welcoming her. But the point was, to me was, so you've been, this is 20 years after you started, the pipeline for USA Swimming, the pipeline still seems to be incredibly rich. It's, it's crazy because I all, you know, I've been in this bubble of USA Swimming for so, so long. Um, and currently I sit on the board and so I'm still kind of in the bubble. It's like my way of giving back while also like staying involved as much as possible. Um, but it, I, I try and think, why is it that we are so successful within USA Swimming? And I think it's a diverse, rich program at the club level and then this amazing NC2A like feeder program in college. Um, but it's, it's really hard to uh, define what has made us successful because, you know, there are so many incredible athletes in Europe and Australia and Asia. And, um, but yet it seems like the Americans are on top and, um, I know several of the reasons why, but I don't know all the reasons why, but mm -hmm. we are very blessed to see that success every four years at the Olympics, um, this time every five years. <laughs> and then um, in between at world championships and pan packs and everything, we have a lot of talent here. Natalie, we've been so excited to to have you on this podcast for a million reasons. And there's so many things to talk with you about and excited to dive into your wines. But I just, you know, before we actually get in and start tasting some of these, I, and I want to talk to you about your cookbook and being a mom and just all, all of the amazing roles and hats that you now wear, um, you know, in your post-Olympic swimming career life. But you grew up around wine, right? Your family lived close to Napa. And we always ask people on, on this podcast, like when they had that aha moment of when they fell in love with a, a certain bottle of wine or had some you know, really memorable experience wine tasting. So I'm just curious for you, did you have that moment or, or do you remember when you had that moment or just has wine always kind of been a, a part of your life and something that you've always, um, you know, grown up from, around and loved? I grew up around it. My parents uh, really enjoyed wine tasting. And uh, I remember on Sundays, you know, after church and everything, we would go, uh, my parents would go wine tasting, and just bring my sister and I along because I was like a lot more uh, acceptable back then. And um, I remember running around in the vineyards and like looking at all the bugs and the grapes and stuff while my parents were tasting. And I just remember that was kind of a cool um, thing to do. And then as I got older, I got more interested in wine. And when I became of drinking age, I really wanted to learn 
more about it. So I just started, you know, taking trips to Napa. And um, the best thing that I would do is I'd find a place that I liked that felt welcoming, especially to a young person. And then I would ask them their suggestions like, hey, I'm young, I'm learning, like, where can I go? And then um, the person pouring would give me three suggestions. I go there and I do the same thing. And um, that way I found places that were um, welcoming for a newbie <laughs> and um, that I learned. And I was able to define my, my palate that way and, and find the wines that I really enjoyed. And my, my tastes definitely have evolved over the past 15, 16, 16 years, I guess. <laughs> but um, I learned a lot from that. Natalie, you bring up such a great point because um, over the years in, in the wine business, one of the things that has been fought over and how can they make it more approachable? How can they get more younger people? How can they get non-traditional wine drinkers to be more involved? And it's gone from everything with, um, you know, obviously Sylvan enclosures, making it easy. You don't have to have a corkscrew or, or maybe we include the corkscrew in the packaging. These things were, we were talking about back, it's been geez, 27, 28 years ago now, um, it's amazing you talk about that because it shows the importance of being comfortable just to try some wine. It's, it, I like it. You know, you have the, the wine snobs, which we all know there's a million of them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the beer snob, the same thing. It's, it's just wine. Just enjoy it. You know? And, and, and I'm, thank you for bringing it up because that, that is such a huge part of trying to get more people access to wine is getting past the presumptions of some and then kind of the what people think of of people who are into wine does i think that makes sense definitely definitely like the, it, it could be so pretentious and i remember going into places and they'd see a 21 year old and, and they make those presumptions of like oh this person just wants to get drunk so we're not gonna pay attention to her and you could feel that unwelcoming attitude from places and then you could feel the welcoming attitude of people who like take you under their wing and hey you need to go to this winery they're really cool they they do this and they do this and um it it, it's helpful and it makes it much more approachable and and you know still i think we're trying to get the younger group in um you know you're battling now with um people of drinking age stuff like the sparkling seltzers with the alcohol added to them and and all these different things like the market is getting split in so many different ways. And so you have to make wine um, approachable and enjoyable. And, and that's one of the reasons, like if you go to our website, um, all of our wine descriptions are super irreverent, tongue in cheek. Um, We are intentionally kind of poking fun at that pretentiousness. If you do click through, you, you end up getting the real um, wine making uh, details. But yeah, we talk about like torturing the interns and making them hand squeeze each grape and picking out the seeds by hand. Like we don't actually do that. It's just to poke fun at the pretentiousness of it all. <laughs> well, and we're going to taste her in a second, but Natalie, since you brought that up, I have to say, you tell the story about your press. You said you pressed or crushed the Pinot? Your first time? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, one of the best things about winemaking, one of my most enjoyable um, tasks when winemaking is the punch down. And so with Pinot Noir, when you're doing the fermentation, you want to be um, very gentle with it. It's a thin skin grape. And so what we do is you um, roll up your sleeves up to your shoulder and um, you sanitize your arms. And then we have 
everything, like the must and the juice, they're all fermenting in these large bins. And because we only make about 150 cases, uh, 200 cases a year of um, Pinot, we're able to do this by hand. So we do the punch downs by hand, which means that you literally, you sanitize your arms and then you bend over these bins and you kind of swim in the must and the juice with your arms to, so that you have an even fermentation um, because the, the top um, is called the cap and you don't want that to dry out. So you're constantly stirring that up um, throughout our, I think, 18 day or so uh, ferment. Um, so it, it really feels like a drill that I used to do in swimming called sculling, where you act like your arms are, are oars. So you're just bending over and I'm using my long arms and just swimming, swimming through the wine with my upper body. It's really, really cool. I just have to say guys, (laughs) yeah, you were, but you were built for this literally Natalie, but I'm, I'm on your (laughs) website now, which, and I hadn't gotten to this part, uh, Gdarenwines.com. These descriptions are fantastic. Like this is this is exactly (laughs) what I this for me for for the kind of wine drinker that I am. Like this is exactly what I'm looking for. So this is describing the 2019 Chenin Blanc, which we which we have right here. Uh, Winemaking. I'm just going to read this whole cluster gentle pressing. We squish those grapes like an auntie on fat baby's cheeks. Like that really speaks to me in terms of I understand exactly what it was. Uh, It tastes like Chenin Blanc. Damn it. Hey, that's actually a catchy slogan. I mean, it's and each one of these has, they're just funny tongue in cheek. And, you know, you've got tasting notes that, ooh, girl, you got to get some of this. It tastes like a creamsicle melted in your mouth. <laughs> I mean, I, that to me, that that speaks to me very, very deeply. So I, I appreciate that. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, these wines? And I, I'm curious, again, as a little bit of a, a wine novice, you think of Napa, anything about cabs, but your flagship wine is is your Chenin Blanc. That's kind of what you guys are known for, and that was kind of how you started. So, can you kind of walk us through why that is, and 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 talk us through this wine? Yeah, definitely. So, the one, two two wines that we sent you were the Chenin Blanc and then the Pinot Noir. So, um, historically, Chenin Blanc was planted all over Napa Valley, and um, back in the day when they realized, you know, Cabernet also grows really, really well in Napa Valley. A lot of that old Chenin was ripped out because it was replaced by with Cabernet and other varietals that command a lot more money, um, uh, you know, that, that cost a lot more. But um, there are a few vineyards that still have Chenin Blanc. And where we get our Chenin is old vine Chenin. So this is at least 50 years old, but it's probably a lot older. The, the records just don't go back prior to 50 years. Um, and my partner and I, Shana Harding, she's the winemaker. Um, both of us really like aromatic whites. Um, so we like something that's dry, but um, just a little different than, than you get from like a Sauvignon Blanc or a Chardonnay. Um, we do offer a Chardonnay as well, but um, yeah, we wanted to start with Chenin Blanc because it's something different. It's something exciting. Um, it's a nod to the history of Napa Valley um, and it's something delicious. Like it goes really, really well with food, um, and compare with all sorts of different things. Now, when I, when I saw Chenin Blanc, I was so happy. Um, yes, I've had the, the Chenin Blancs from the Loire. I've, i those are all great. The, you know, the, the late harvest for your pâtés or whatever, but I, a throwback to California, like you said, it, the, the wine market, and actually, 
goes much further back, you know, than 50 years. You even said it yourself because there was a, obviously the sweet white wines of California, of Napa. That's what they were. They were Chenin Blanc. It lends itself to residual sugar very well, which I'm glad to say you don't have any in this, which is nice. Um, but it, for a novice drinker would think, whoa, that's kind of sweet because of that fruit and what's in there. I, I love it. I, and then I saw your description. It tastes like Chenin Blanc. That's a joke that we've <laughs> always used within any wine circle of my friends. Well, what's this Cabernet taste like? It tastes like a Cabernet. You know, just, what do you want me to tell you? It tastes like it's supposed to taste. So I love the way you've done it. It's, I mean, they're incredible. And uh, for me, the I love Chenin Blancs. Obviously, you can. They're great any time of day. They're great when it's hot and sunny. Goes with a million types of food. The more full body kind of little, little more fruity, but they taste sweeter. Goes great with Szechuan. It's a, it's a. It's a, a wine I've been drinking for years. I was so happy to see it on the plate. Thank you. I mean, it was like, all right, something fun. I'm, it's not pretentious. It's cool. So Thank you. I, I, I really appreciate it. And if you could see our vineyard, it's awesome because it the 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 vines themselves are super like gnarled and old. And um, so they, they are without a doubt older than 50 years. We just have no idea beyond what. But the, the berries are so small. The first year we did Chenin Blanc, we were doing it in, in Clarksburg, the 2017. And when we found the, the vineyard in Pope Valley, um, so 2018, 2019, 2020, um, you, like, my partner, she said she started crying because she was so excited. The berries are really, really tall or small, sorry, really small. And so you get um, just more nuanced, uh, complex flavors. And um, we're very, very pleased with it. So what's your go-to meal with this? I mean, you said it pairs my go-to meal. Yeah. yeah. So we oh, got a lot like shrimp goes really, really well uh, with this because it does have a little bit of that sweetness. Mm -hmm. um, and so if we're going to go into my cookbook, um, one of my favorite pairings with one of my recipes is a shrimp fritter. Um, so it's actually my great grandma's recipe for ukoi, which is a um, Filipino uh, shrimp fritter. Um, but instead of calling it ukoi in my book, I called it a shrimp fritter just to make it, again, more approachable. Um, but uh, it goes really nice with that kind of like fried, um, but uh, sweetness, you know, it, it cuts through the, the tempura-like batter of, of the ukoi and then has that nice sweetness to balance it out. Um, there's lots of acidity also that, that kind of cuts through all that, that richness. So it's one of my, one of my favorites. But this, um, like, like Len says, will go really nicely with anything spicy because it does have a seemingly sweet sweetness to balance that out, even though there is no uh, residual sugar in this. Ashley, had you heard of Chenin Blanc before? I mean, yeah, I but I didn't really know about I it. I would say, yeah. I mean, I knew I I had heard of it, but couldn't tell you. I mean, I had friends who said, "Oh, if you like Chardonnay, you you'd probably like Chenin Blanc." But this is, I, I think, this is fantastic. Yeah, amazing. Such an education, and so Natalie, this is why we have Glenn because Glenn yes. you know, immediately knew Loire Valley, which I had to look up when I opened your bottle yesterday. Of Chen I cheated. I opened it yesterday. <laughs> And I had to look it up because I wasn't familiar with the grape or the story of it. And I learned about the Loire Valley. So thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Glenn, for this education. I just I just remember a lot. That's all. You know how it is. <laughs> I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> but I, it's, it really, it, it's always kind of the one that back in the day, you I could kind of stock inexpensively 
and know on any given night, depending on what we were eating, if it was it, shrimp was is obviously a go-to. Um, Nellie, I, they didn't mention, I also played in the NFL a long time. So, you know, meals become important and, and, and what you're going to be drinking with them. So, yes, it, seafood, shellfish, and I said Szechuan because the spiciness, the fried mm-hmm. Chenin Blanc is perfect. The other one that goes well is Gewürztraminer, but, you know, that's maybe even – it's maybe more obscure in some wine circles than Chenin Blanc, but I don't know. Much and harder to say. say, and I don't think grows <laughs> – yeah, I don't think it grows very well in California. <laughs> We're a little too warm for that one, but I do I, I do love a good Gewürztraminer. <laughs> Natalie, you mentioned Shana Harding, your you know, a friend and, and you know, the winemaker. Now, she, I think she'd been making wine since 2008 and sort of wanted to start something on her own. So can you kind of tell us a story of when she came to you and, and, and what you said? And also even Gadarian wines, like what is what that word means and how you guys sort of chose to go the direction you went? Yeah, thank you. So, um, yeah, Gadarian means to to gather in Old English. And so when you think of wine, um, you think of gathering around a table of food and appetizers and friends and gathering around a table, gathering at a party. Um, so that was when we saw that name was available. We were really excited about it because, I mean, naming a wine is really tough because <laughs> it's one of the largest businesses out there and you have to choose something unique. And so, um, we had so many different ideas and when we settled on Gadarian and, and found out that it was, um, available, we were stoked. Um, so yeah, so Shana's husband and my husband swam together at UCSB. Um, and I met her when, um, she and her husband got married and, and moved from New York back to California. And she was interested in wine at the time and started um, just at the very bottom at like as a cellar rat and started um, working her way up through the ranks. Um, you know, she worked from, from cellar rat and then um, was going to school at the same time at UC Davis, got her enology and viticulture degree um, and then worked her way up to enologist and, um, and then winemaker. And she did so fairly quickly. And one of the reasons is she's incredibly talented and has this amazing palate um, and also a, a strong work ethic. And all the while, while she was working her way up, I was always super vocal with her when I would see her. Like, I was so impressed. I was just like, man, I'm so impressed that you're working your way up and you're so successful in this. Like, I wish I could do that someday. And apparently, I offhand once um, talked about perhaps buying a house that had um, grapes. Like my husband and I were looking to move um, in early, like 2007 or so. And there was a house here in Lafayette that um, had grapes. And I, and I was telling Shana, I was like, maybe you could take care of them because I would hate to kill all those lovely <laughs> wine grapes. <laughs> and I guess that was enough to plant the seed in her head because you fast forward to 2017 and she texted me out of the blue, hey, I'm finally ready to start a, a wine label. And I w- was wondering if you wanted to partner with me. And I texted her immediately and said yes. And I honestly, to, like honest to God, thought that she might have texted the wrong Natalie in her contacts or <laughs> <laughs> meant to text a Nicole or something, because I've done that. So and no I told her that though. she couldn't take it back. Yeah. Yeah, I t- yeah, I was like, nope, I'm in. You can't, you can't get rid of me now. 
Um, so that's really how we started without knowing what we were doing or she, she knew what she was doing. I didn't. And I learned as I, as I went and as I am going, um, and it's been really challenging, but, but so fun, you know, like I, I love being challenged in this way. And we, we have a great product to show for our, the four, four, five, I guess it's our fifth harvest, um, you know, this, this fall. All right, great product. So let's let's talk about your Pinot. We touched on it. The uh, I'm holding here the Sunset Knoll Vineyard Carneros. I've had the pleasure of having a few of them previously. There you go, Natalie. I'm so um, glad. Yeah, and 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 we've touched on Pinots here a little bit on our show so far. I I've been so impressed because I love it, and I've been impressed at how the grape seems to, at least over my awareness, <laughs> has taken off in California. How did you how did you and Shana decide on Pinot? So we decided on Pinot for a few different reasons. So Shana used to work at Flores Springs and um the Garvey family um had a vineyard in Carneros that had Pinot Noir that was available. So when we knew that it, this great vineyard um that Shana had worked with previously was available, we jumped on it. Um, the timing, because Shana is still the winemaker at Honeycutt, which is a custom crush facility, which, um, they make everything that you can imagine, but being that it is in St. Helena, a lot of it is Cabernet. So, um, when you harvest Pinot Noir, unless it's just an insane harvest, yeah, you, Pinot Noir is always going to come in before Cabernet will come in. Um, so it was a little bit of scheduling, a little bit of, um, serendipity of having this great vineyard available. And also just the fact that, again, it's a very food friendly wine. It's something that's a little different than Cabernet. We have a Cabernet that we're really proud of that we're going to um, release this fall. Um, but we wanted to start off with Pinot because in all honesty, it's a little cheaper for us as a, a starting business. Um, we only had so much capital. Um, it's a little easier to get in with, with Pinot first, then save your money, then you go in, in with the cab. <laughs> but we're very, very proud of it. Um, this, this Pinot Noir is the only, only vineyard and the only um, wine that we've been making the entire history of, of Guderian at the same location. Um, and it's, it's been really, really nice. And it's interesting to compare the 2018 and the 2019, both of them. We made exactly the same way with the same amount of oak. It's about 30% oak. And um, really highlights when you do a side by side of um, the terroir. You know, like I'm not saying that correctly. Please forgive me, any French speaker. Um, your ears are just like like ringing right now. Um, but um, the two very different harvests um, of 18 and 19. It's a nice way to compare. Yeah. It's okay. Oh, go ahead. Ted. I was going to say, Natalie. It's all right. As someone who goes to France a lot, you just you think about how like Elmer Fudd used to talk <laughs> and then yeah. you, you got it perfectly. <laughs> right, I, for one, applaud you doing day. Pinot Noir. I, it's my favorite, it's my favorite wine. I, um, I will refuse to spend money on burgundies because I know what it's like. And I think I've said in past uh, issues, it's, it's, it's that first high, you never get it back. So you're always chasing it. So uh, Pinot Noir, I just absolutely, I love what's coming out. I know, I appreciate you went with Carneros, something close to home. You didn't do the Russian River Valley style. So uh, for the rest of this crew, uh, 
Russian Vervalli, they can get they get very fruity. They can get really big. Napa can get when they do make them can be highly alcoholic. Carneros is a colder area. It's really kind of it's really kind of cool. It was a cattle area when I was growing up. It was all cows, and then as it um, as it progressed into wine, it became the house where champagne houses started. And and well, I should say Method Champenois. Uh, houses. I'm probably butchering that French too, Natalie. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> Anglo-Saxon tongue here, uh, but and it's so. Carnage is always more to me like Oregon, um, and I love Oregon Pinots. I started going up there in the late 1980s to see my family, and the wines were just taking off, and I just fell in love with them. And I mean, t- to this day, I Pinot's my house drink. That's why I always have around. So you you put together a really super. Um, affordable wine any weekend meal this is uh, could be on the table absolutely thank you really good stuff and it's not so fruity and bomb like you can't eat with it it's like you said pinot noir is the best food wine it goes with everything i mean that's why i like it too because my wife wants fish i want steak or vice versa we can order a pinot and we're both super happy i don't have to worry about it um and well done Good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. We're really, really proud of it. We earned um, gold from, uh, gosh, I'm going to, I'm going to mess this up now. Uh, we earned a double gold from uh, the North coast wine competition from the Napa Valley register. Um, and with 98 points uh, with the, I, I believe that was a 19 though, but um, yeah, we earned also gold with the Somalia's choice with the Pinot Noir of the 18. So um, it's it's nice to get the recognition because you know when you're so close to it you, you're like I like this <laughs> we're really <laughs> proud of it and but um, getting that like external um, recognition is is really nice to kind of validate what what we all already think. But <laughs> okay, question for you though you you talk about the anxiety of being there to swim on those days. What's the anxiety of a new vintage out and wondering what reviewers are going to say? How's it compare? <sighs> The anxiety of that is is kind of minimal because it, it just is. But honestly, it's the fires. Like with, like I think everyone this year after sur- what we what survived twenty twenty, we're just praying and hoping that you know no wildfires this summer. Because honestly, with every vintage, there's been threat of fire or or a fire. So. Um, that's kind of where all of my anxiety, uh, goes, <laughs> especially with the ma- massive drought right now. Um, so that'll be the biggest challenge of, of 2021, I think, um, is com- the combo of the drought and, um, the threat of fire. And Natalie, probably one of the hardest parts is when you have anxiety about something that you can't control. So like, what do you, I mean, exactly. I, as, a, as a winemaker and someone you're just kind of waiting and seeing and watching what... I'm just curious as to sort of like how you navigate that. And is, is there anything to be done? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say, like, I am not educated enough on that subject to, to really say what there is to do. But, um, I will say Shana is a freaking rock star. Like what she has been able to do as a winemaker over the past several years has been incredible. Like she's figured out how to MacGyver, winemaking without power, like wearing a gas mask, um, 
literally when things around her are on fire, like she's still making wine, including our own. Um, like she's amazing. And, um, she, and I think a lot of winemakers have learned a lot the past few years, even the really experienced ones. Um, and not saying that Shane is not experienced, she's experienced, but maybe the more seasoned older vet vets, um, of winemaking, I think the past four years, five years has been extremely unique with, um, the challenges. Um, because there, there was one point where Honeycutt, I think, um, pg e cut the power for, I think a week last year. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, there were the the way that she was able to still make beautiful wine for Gadarian and other brands, I I will I'm just amazed by um, her ingenuity. Well, speaking of ingenuity, I mean, I, one of the reasons again I mentioned earlier, but I'm excited to have you on this podcast to talk to you about a, a lot of things, including swimming and, and wine. But it, you being a you're the first woman that we've had on this podcast. So I was excited about that, but I just, I'm curious to know kind of the nuances around being a woman to women in, in the winemaking industry. Like, is it, is it feel like an old boys club? Are there, is, is it changed a little bit? Are there other women owned wine brands that, you know, that you and Shana connect with kind of, how do you navigate that or approach it if at all? Well, it is an old boys club and I didn't realize that until it was pointed out to me. And then you start thinking about it and, and then you're like, oh, yeah, I guess I guess that is true. Um, and I think I'm kind of used to that, um, just being a woman in sport, even though even though swimming is very much split 50-50. As an athlete, I'm often invited to events where I am the only female. And it's just become something that's normal to me um, until it's pointed out. And then, then I realize it. But... Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, there's this whole group called Women in Wine. I think the New York Times maybe a month ago did this really great piece on Women in Wine and mm-hmm. um, the the group in Sonoma that um, has grown from this tiny, tiny little bit of, of women-owned wineries to, um, you know, I think a couple, I, I don't know the actual number, so forgive me, um, but it, it it's grown significantly. But it is you know, pretty cool that the the owners of this brand are two women and something that we are very proud of and we promote it. Um, but yeah, Shana could definitely talk to that more because she's in it day to day. Like I'm not, I'm not at the winery day to day. Um, she is. And um, I, I do know that the numbers are favorable much more on the, the male side than the women, but I know it's growing with women. Yeah. So I can tell you, because I have the story here that you referenced, Natalie, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Amy, who founded Women's Own Winery, said out, her research is out of about 10,000 wineries. It's 600. Yep. But, yep. And, and Glenn, you know this because we've talked about there are very strong women winemakers like Shana. It's just Natalie to be the owners. That, that's, the, that's the big one. Right? Yeah, because women, I mean, Natalie, is, we've. As a guy, I'm perfectly comfortable saying this. Your your palate, your noses, particularly your nose, so much better mm-hmm. on general than men's. And that it, it started back in the 90s, early 90s, but really hit its stride into the 2000s. Women winemakers have splashed. They're the top winemakers. It's just the, as you said, the owners, and don't and particularly like of the big estates, the the big properties are still all all male dominated. Is that would you, is that correct? 
Yeah, that's definitely correct. And and to kind of touch on what you're saying, I, I believe it's something like two thirds of the super tasters in the world are women. So there is like a biological, um, who knows why difference. Maybe it goes back to our hunting and gathering days. Who knows? <laughs> I ask my wife sometimes, I'll simply go, there's something in here and, and my memory bank of all the smells is right there. And I'm like, there's something I can't get. And my wife is not into wine like that. Not doesn't, you know, she'll drink it. That's, and I go, she'll go orange peel and molasses. I'm like, <laughs> that's it. Yeah, you're like, it's on the tip of my tongue. I know yeah. it. Yeah. Oregano. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Ashley, is that you? It's, well, I was just going to say, Natalie, this brings up something that I brought up on our last podcast. And I think I got a lot of blank stares, but uh, as a mom, maybe you can relate to this. When I was pregnant with both of my children, my sense of smell was like off the charts to, to yes. a point that was not helpful. Uh, of course I wasn't, um, you know, trying to, to make wine or anything like that, but how has a, did, was that the same for you? And B like, how did you navigate? I mean, certainly with your most recently, you have a seven month old, right? A, a two year old mm-hmm. and a seven month old. So what was it like being a, you know, being a winemaker and going through the process of making wine, um, you know, being a mom and being pregnant? It's tough, man. It's tough. Yeah. There's a great photo that I posted on Instagram where I was almost like almost fully cooked. I think like 37 weeks pregnant. So right, right at nine months and digging out the Pinot bins, like the physical <laughs> like bump, like just blocking my reach into the bin was a little difficult. Um, but yeah, your, your sense of smell and your, and your sense of taste are heightened. And when you're not drinking, I remember being able to smell a glass of wine from across the room. Cause that's what I like. I wanted that most. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of women, they say when they're pregnant, like the last thing they want is a glass of wine. I crave <laughs> a glass of wine so much. And so yeah. when it was being poured around me, I could just like close my eyes and like, imagine like Toucan Sam, like floating on like the, <laughs> the cloud of aromas. Like that was me. Um, but uh, yeah, as, as a winemaker, I'm, I'm not, technically a winemaker, I'm a vintner, but as someone who makes wine, you know, you have to taste your, your product. And so what I would do is just taste and spit. And, um, that little bit of tasting it was so satisfying, even though I spit it, it was enough to kind of, um, quell that, that, uh, desire. <laughs> hey, Natalie, yeah. tell us more about the cookbook. We, the, we brushed on that. Tell us more. Yeah, the cookbook. So it was, oh gosh, I think it was published 2019. Um, and it's called Cook to Thrive. Um, it's a combination of recipes that I made when I was training for the Olympics and World Championships, a combination of family recipes, um, and then recipes from my travels of, of swimming. So I I never really wanted to do like a memoir or anything like that, but I wanted to tell some stories from my swimming career and from my travels. And so I did that through food, Um, like everything else in my life, I do it through food and then wine. Um, So it was, it was an interesting process. I'm, I'm doing the zoom right now from my office. I was locked in my office, uh, in 2016, 20 or 2017 writing at uh, away at my book. And that was, very challenging. 
<laughs> uh, I, I thought that I, I knew it was something that I wanted to do, but I didn't realize how difficult writing a cookbook is um, because not only are you writing the, the, phys- the actual words, but you're testing recipes, developing recipes. You're going to the store, washing a mountain of dishes. Like it, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, but it was really, really fun. And going back to those family recipes, I'm lucky enough to have my mom. I still have my grandma and I had my great grandma up until I was in college. So I had so many great recipes from, from them um, that I got to share uh, with in, in my cookbook. And like I said, that, that Ukoi is uh, one of my favorites that pairs really well with the Shannon. So I have to ask a, a question though, Natalie, in, for me as an offensive lineman into wine and cooking myself, it was never an issue, um, but as as a swimmer, particularly that training period for the trials and and then the Olympics, how do you balance? I want this meal. I love good food, or I love wine. Um, your sense of feel for the water and everything is so more heightened during that period compared to anything I go through as a big guy in the trenches. I can't <laughs> imagine. Can you speak to that? Yeah, it was tough. So. I mean, you have to be really disciplined about it. I I am one of those people, if you go into the psychology of like deprivation, if you tell me I can't have something, all I do is obsess on that one thing I cannot have. So I never, with with my own diet, when we are outside of the Olympic camp, um, I never told myself something was off limits because that would always back backfire in like spectacular fashion. So I always allowed myself to have a glass of wine or two uh, with dinner and just make that part of my my healthy choices. And and so moderation is key. So I would always have it with with my meal and it was never to get drunk. It was to um, enjoy my meal and heighten the sense of satisfaction with that meal. Um, when we then would make the Olympic team and go into Olympic camp for the six weeks, it was dry, um, where none of the athletes, none of the coaches were allowed to have even a sip of alcohol, which I always thought was, um, a little condescending and I really hated it, but it was something that I did. Um, and <laughs> got through it. And luckily I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> and, and I think, I think they've, um, USA swimming has changed their, their stance on that. Um, but a lot of those rules were in place when the Olympic team was comprised of 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds. And were kind of grand, those rules were grandfathered in, but since then they've evolved. <laughs> Natalie, you, you mentioned how much, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ted. No, I, I'm sorry, Ash. I was just going to say your your degree in Cal is from is in what? Psychology. Ah, I'm <laughs> sensing that. <laughs> yeah. Very so good. I recognize my triggers and I recognize like how I'm motivated. And so, yeah, you tell me that you can't have an ounce of sugar or any butter, or any wine. Like that's ridiculous. Like all I will do is focus on that. And there are people who you could who need that that all or nothing mentality. But I am not one of them. And I think it worked out pretty well for you. I just will say whatever. Yeah, whatever. It did. <laughs> I think it played out pretty well. You mentioned earlier, it's Natalie. It's better that, to know yourself, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, that you guys have a, a Cabernet coming out in October. So tell us, tell us about that. So, 
Yeah, so we're really excited. We finally have like a full portfolio of wines. So we have the Chenin, we have a Chardonnay, we have a Rosé of Pinot Noir, we have um, our Pinot Noir, a Petit Syrah, and then the Cabernet. So our Cabernet is the 2019 vintage. Um, So it was aged in barrel, I believe, 20 months. Um, So a combination of new French oak, um, and new American oak. Um, and so we blended it all together to, to make our Cabernet. And I will say it is tasting incredible so far. Um, oh, I love it. We're, we're, we're so proud of it. So excited to release it. Um, it, it has like the tannins are already like nice and soft and, and like luscious and it has, um, some really good spice, um, it, it's not too, too fruit heavy. Um, we're really, really excited about it. So we're, um, happy that it will release. And I think September is what we're aiming for. And will it follow the same kind of price point that you've set up with your other wines? So it's or- a little bit more because it is Cabernet and it is right. all, all like it's been aged longer. So that we're going to retail at 68. So, um, our, our rosé is our uh, most affordable wine, I believe, at $28. Our Chenin Blanc and our Chardonnay are 32 Our Petit Syrah and Pinot Noir are 45 And then the Cabernet will be $68. Um, and, the, and then also to note that Petit Syrah is for our club members only because we only made one barrel of that. So it is very, very limited. Um, it, are, it sold out immediately. It's amazing. My even Shana and I have been fighting over the last four bottles <laughs> of it. <laughs> it's it's really good and something that could age for a very very long time um, in in your cellar. How much smarter are you about wine now, Natalie, than than let's say five years ago when you first a lot, started? A lot, especially with the Pinot Noir and the Chenin Blanc, the two that we've been making the longest, um, the sense memory uh, has really, really improved. So I am able to recall what early ferments of Chenin tasted versus, um, you know, from year to year. Like I, I remember when we were making the 2019, which is, I believe, what we sent all of you, um, when it was just in barrel, um, going through secondary fermentation, I would just smell it. I'm like, I smell so much pineapple. Like we never had this, you know, this, these like tropical notes that we had, like we, uh, that we have in the 19, like, so I'm able to compare and contrast and really, really impressed with myself of, of that sense memory. And then, um, also just the differences of the winemaking. So I alluded to the Pinot Noir, you want to be really gentle with the ferment. And when we first made the Cabernet, we made that in tank um, and you just kind of mash it up. And I asked Shana, I was like, why aren't we doing the punch downs? And she's like, oh, you don't want to be gentle with Cabernet. Like, and I think she used... Um, I think she used a term, like a, she used a four-letter word. She's like, you really want to F it up. <laughs> kind of goes back to our, um, you know, our, our uh, irreverent tasting note. She's like, you really want to get in there and, um, you know, kind of abuse it uh, when it's going through ferment. And so, so learning the differences of the wine have, has really been uh, wonderful. Can I ask you, like, what the biggest, you know, mistake or faux pas you've had in your in your winemaking career? 
Oh man, uh, a lot. Yeah, I, I did. I did this. <laughs> I did this video for Cal Bears um, when I was. Um, I think it was when I was being inducted to the Cal Hall of Fame. It's either when I was being inducted or I was providing the wine at the induction. I can't remember. Um, but I, 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 they were doing a video of the winemaking and um, I was trying to use the wine thief um, to do a barrel tasting for the video and the top of it wasn't available. So you can't, when, when you go through the bunghole, so you take, the cap off and you stick the wine thief in, in the barrel and you siphon it off and the top was missing. And so I ended up having to use my palm and, and then use the, the wine thief to, to get the taste. And it looks so ugly and so, like such a noob. Um, but, uh, that's all you could do. My thumb wasn't big enough. <laughs> so, so that was a little embarrassing, but, okay. um, yeah, there's there's a lot of embarrassing moments. <laughs> Not embarrassing, but as a as a winemaker now, you've it's been enough time for you. You've probably met others. Has there been anybody in the wine business that you've been almost like um, I don't know if it's nervous or excited? Somebody just you you said, "Wow, I, I really can't wait to meet this person." You did. Um, there have been several. Um, I'm gonna. Probably from wine enthusiast, uh, Virginie, like I did a, a tasting with her um, early when um, I was a judge for the Hall Wines Cabernet Cookoff, and um, I was just really nervous about my wine knowledge. And, and honestly, when I do wine events and I'm with either Shana or other people who have done it a lot longer than I am. I definitely am more of a wallflower and I want to listen and learn. Like I, my, my base knowledge is, is good, but um, I want to learn from the people who know best. Um, and I, it's one of the few times in my life where I don't have like the utmost confidence in myself. Like as an athlete, I'm always, you know, very, very confident of myself and in the wine world, I'm still learning and I'm, um, and I fully embrace that. And, um, yeah, but there, there have been a lot of people when, uh, they're super successful and I'm around them. I just, I just want to listen. I don't want to add to the conversation. I just want to listen and learn. <laughs> Isn't there times though, when you, when you've sat there next to someone going on about aspects of a wine and go, you know what? It, it tastes like Chenin Blanc to me. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, it does. I, I mean, I'm sure you guys have all seen Psalm, you know, and uh, the documentary yeah. Psalm and, and Netflix. And it's like, tastes like freshly cut garden hose. It's like, who the hell cuts their garden hose? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, why would anyone want to taste that? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> hey, Natalie, um, let's, let's swing back here as we wrap and, and where we started. Um, first of all, are any of your former colleagues, swimmers, good customers? Come on, let's yes. give somebody some love here. Oh, yes. Actually, one of my former teammates, um, Keiko Price, is probably our number one um, customer uh, in our wine club. Uh, she was a UCLA swimmer and national team member. Yeah, no, we have a lot of, of really good customers from, from swimming. And um, yeah, that's been very nice to be able to share it with uh, my, my old teammates. So we're, we're, we're just a little bit more than 30 days out now from this different Olympics. Uh, give me, you know, someone who went to it a bunch and succeeded a bunch. 
what's been your thought about all this, you know, everything that the Olympians have had to go through now for the last year? It's been nuts. It's been nuts. It's a hard, like I said this in the beginning of the podcast, it's a hard enough year regardless. And so you mm -hmm. add this pandemic on top of it. I think it, for some people it will be, or perhaps already has been too much stress to handle and they kind of crumbled under it. And I think for another half of people, like kind of going into the psychology of it, everyone's different. I think maybe having this pandemic may have taken some of the pressure off of them. And so maybe they'll perform better um, knowing that like, oh my gosh, we have been completely out of sorts, haven't had pool time, but no one has. And this is just swimming or this is just track or this is just gymnastics. It's not life or death. I'm just going to go out here and have fun and maybe they'll have the performance of their life. Like who knows? Um, I, I, I think it'll be very exciting that for spectators. Um, I don't envy the athletes though. It's uh, man, it's been, <laughs> it's been a tough year. I know just in California alone, so many pools were shut down and it, swimming is a sport. You need to be in the water. You cannot take a week off or two weeks or whatever. And so many athletes have missed that essential training time. So I know that has to be in the back of their minds, but people have gotten creative, a lot of, a lot of dryland training. <laughs> well, and you would appreciate this and I just, I'll tell it, but I mean, I woke up one morning last March and had a text on my phone from someone saying, can you help? You need a place to swim today. Yep. It was Katie Ledecky. Yep. And Simone Manuel, they had been locked out of the Stanford pool. And Katie said, can you help find yep. us a place to swim? Because as you said, they didn't want to go a day without at least being in water. And I mean, that's insane when these are two Olympic champions and that was what, what they were facing. So did you help, Ted? I mean, the question is, did you help? <laughs> you said, get well, out of yes, my backyard. Actually, <laughs> yes, I did. And, and, uh, and I was proud to. And then eventually, uh, believe it or not, it was a UCLA, the man who uh, donated a ton of money to the Rose Bowl field. A UCLA uh, master swimmer who lives near me has a 25-yard backyard pool. And Katie and Simone ended up spending about three months there. Yeah. But, I mean, the wow. point was their own school locked them out. They were the first ones to lock them out. <laughs> yeah, and, th and that story is not unique. There, there yeah, have been exactly. so many exactly. national team athletes who were literally looking at Google, Google Earth to see who in their neighborhood has a pool and go around knocking on doors. Like, it, it's yeah. been insane. Wow. Um, and, and you see photos of people like jerry rigging some sort of bungee system so you could just swim in place um, in a tiny little backyard pool. So people uh, were, the ingenuity is out there. Um, and I'm going to do that for my kid, by the way. I'm going to get a bungee <laughs> in the kiddie pool. Yeah. yeah. Nice. As, as a lifelong surfer, I'm saying just there's that big ocean out there. Just paddle out, babe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're going. 56 degrees, a yeah. little chilly, but you know. Yeah. Open water swimming, nothing like it for the strength. Let's roll. <laughs> now Glenn I Parker, you should be proud because our best diver off the platform uh, that's going to Tokyo in a few weeks is from the U of A. That's right. So you, should be, you should be very proud. Don't worry, my wife watches and always has since the dad met her watches all swimming for the olympics um in, including the um trials we had a, a local kid a friend of ours son that was in it and uh she's always watched because she was a high school swimmer and a college synchronized swimmer at the university of arizona way back in the day mm -hmm. so yeah we're swimming's big in the family 
right now. Good. Um, so yeah, Natalie, the last thing for me, and, and thank you for being generous with your time and your wine. It's been just a, a pleasure to get to know you and to chat with you over the last hour. But I think there was, there was someone who said to me the other day that one of the most important things you can do is to be able to constantly reinvent yourself. And I, I look at your track and being someone who was so successful in, in swimming at the highest level for so long to now dive into something that you, you know, admittedly have, have is out of your comfort zone and, and making your world of, you know, kind of you reinvented yourself for former athletes who, you know, get out of, uh, you know, aren't competing at the highest levels again, like what advice would you give? Or do you talk to young athletes as they sort of transition from being at the top of their profession to, okay, what is next? What is the next chapter of my life? Like what, what advice or what, what kind of insight do you have on making that transition? I think that is such an important question. And um, so many athletes struggle. And I'm sure, Glenn, you could really appreciate this having been in the NFL, is they struggle when they retire. Their entire identity was a athlete. And when you retire at 35 or you know 30 or 28, you have so much life ahead of you. And you were so successful in this one realm, and then you're not. And you don't have a coach telling you what to do and how exactly to get to your goals. Um, it, the path isn't as clean, and it's not as laid out for you. And that is scary, and it's depressing for a lot of people. And it's it's very, very difficult to navigate. So I tell people when asked um, that you need to find your passions, and you need to um, establish those early and know that your career will end. So you do have to have a bit of an exit strategy. Um, you don't want to plan too much for the future when you're still in your sport because you want to give your all to that sport. But you have to accept the reality that it will end and you need a plan for that. Um, so take every opportunity that comes your way because if you're a successful athlete, there are a lot of doors open up to you. There are a lot of experts that are in your corner. And then you could um, use every one of those opportunities as learning opportunities to kind of pivot for that, that next step. Um, and hopefully that's what I've done. And um, I, I'm very proud of the business that I've built with, with Shana over the past few years. And I'm hoping to continue to grow it and um, share it with more and more people. Tell me the truth. Did you think about 12 medals as a name for the wine? <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Like I, yeah, I, I never know how much to promote the athlete owned, you know, quote unquote celebrity owned brand, because I don't want people to think that I just slap my name onto some wine um, and someone else is making it for me or that it's some bulk wine that we're buying, you know, uh, it, <laughs> this is something that Shana and I create together and it's a boutique wine out of Napa Valley, um, that we are very, very proud of. And so, yeah, I never wanted it to be like Natalie Coughlin wines, um, because that, that's not what it's about. And also it's half Shana's. I wanted it to be something that we built together. Well, thank you and thank Shana for sharing your story, sharing this wonderful wine. Like I said, I'm happy to have been a customer previously, so it's been awesome. And so for, for Ashley, Glenn, and of course, Adam Gordon, who's the brains of our operation, Natalie, thank you so much. And uh, we look forward, 
I still have half a bottle. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if you want to stick on later, I've still got plenty of wine. So. <laughs> Thank you, Natalie. You know, perfect. Thank yeah. you, Natalie. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for joining us this week on Outside the Vines. Remember to check out our YouTube channel to get more out of your experience with the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back on our next episode soon. This has been a presentation of Outside the Vines. With a love of wine and the thirst for sports.